it out. Get it out. Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community, match by match, fan by fan, story by story. This week, we have a really great guest for you guys. We have Oliver Curry, the kit man for your black and gold LAFC, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about how he got into it, how he got involved, and, you know, it's just overall stories of of LAFC. With me today is my co-host. Christian Aparicio. Jonathan Reimer is visiting some of his family up north, so uh, he will be back with us next week. And of course, we have our opponent correspondent this week helping us preview the match against FC Dallas, which is going to be the third degree, which covers FC Dallas since 1997. So with that, Christian, my friend, how are you? I'm doing well. Missed the golden voice of Jonathan, but you know what? We're going to hold it down. We're going to have a good show. Looking forward to recapping this last match, but you know, I can't wait. Can't wait for the conversation with Oliver Curry for y'all to be able to hear some of the stories, his career path, where he is, what he's doing, and some of the memorable things that he's been able to witness. Absolutely. Oliver is a really great friend, a really good guy, the podcast and, and the LAFC community. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But we do have a match that we have to cover. And We have a W. We're back in the win column. We are still in first place in the West. Austin had dropped points. We still have a game in hand, even though we're tied with points with Philadelphia. So we are still in the driver's seat right now for the Supporters' Shield. We played Real Salt Lake this past Sunday night with a 2-0 victory. Christian, what did you think initially of the overall scoreline of the match and how the players performed? Honestly, I felt confident about it. I think we finally had... Our midfield with Ilya. I think he's the integral part, and we never had had a consistent over the last three matches game with him. Uh, although we had him at Houston, we were we weren't able to to put it away in terms of goals. So I felt at home with him in the fulcrum of the midfield that my three one prediction was gonna be the right prediction. It was still two goal difference, two nil was the scoreline, and, and no, I I was happy about the performance. So it was zero zero at halftime. And I'm going to be honest, going into halftime against RSL, there was a lot of opportunities for LAFC to put some back and get up early, but it didn't play out. I was a little bit uncomfortable at halftime because even though we've been known to being a second half team, just coming off of the recent run of form that we had had, I was a little bit nervous, but I was happy to see that we had had two goals. We had a goal from Ryan Hollingshead in the 49th minute. The mustache was back. And then, of course, Mr. Reliable Chicho Arango comes in in the 68th minute and he gets himself a goal also to put us up 2-0. Tell me what you thought about those two goals. Yeah, no, Ryan Hollingshead, whenever he's in the game, I I feel like he is a goal threat. Solid uh, defender as well, but he just finds the right moments to make his runs. I think in in the goal we scored, he just found himself kind of between the, the penalty kick spot and the six-yard box, uh, just waiting for something to happen. And I think he talked about it in his post game. He he finds ways to understand and recognize when whoever is his assigned defender isn't looking. He kind of uh, makes this run. He was able to do that. There was a little bit of a mishit or miscommunication and was able to take advantage of that. And point blank, he, he always hits the ball pretty true with either foot or his head. So he is a uncommon finisher for a defender. And he he almost had one in the first half, actually. I think Denny Buwanga went into the first post. He was trying to do a glancing header. He completely kind of fluffed it. And it sat there for him. And it was a goal line clearance after Collins had put it on frame. So 
Uh, he almost scored before and he took advantage of the second opportunity. In both instances, he put it on frame, which we couldn't really do in some other games. But when Ryan is in, he, he's able to do that. Something you mentioned, too, about Ryan Hollingshead, and Max had actually mentioned it on the broadcast. As a defender, Ryan Hollingshead is leading the MLS with goals scored by a defender. To have that in our defense and to have that on our club this season is amazing. It's just another aerial threat. And, you know, especially when you look at Mamadou Fall, who, uh, you know, and how he his prowess was. I mean, our defenders have scored a significant amount of goals this season. And it's exciting to see that we are getting production, not just from our, our front three. Totally. No. And um, another thing to think about is, like, he's probably the most efficient defender that is scoring because he's not necessarily starting game in, game out. He's trading shifts with Cheeky and with Escobar. Franco. It was a joke. I know. <laughs> That's what I call him because he's a little bit of a killer on, on the right and he, he goes with no holds barred. Mr. Franco wasn't able to play and I think he had that injury in Houston. So I was a little, a little weary that uh, we would be a little bit stretched in terms of defenders and having subs. But Hollingshead was able to put a 90-minute shift without a blink and was able to put put one away. The second goal by by Chicho. Chicho is cheeky, man. And not cheeky like Cheek Palacios, but he he had some flair, some pizzazz when he got that ball from uh, Vela. Uh, slipped it in at the right moment. Put it on the foot that he needed to, to kind of corral it really quickly. And it gave him the time and space with his good first touch to be able to have that fake shot. The goalie sat down, went to his right. And he just kind of passed it right next to him within like a foot or two of where he dove. It was just, you know, super classy, super cheeky. Uh, I loved it. I loved the confidence that he has to be able to do that. Um, defenders are not that far away from him, but he still had the wherewithal to be able to think about it, to put it on the foot that he wanted to, to shoot it with and, and throw that fake and quickly resolve the play and execute. One other point of that's worth noting and a highlight for this match we had the first starting match for Denny Buwanga. He had a lot of really good runs. He looked extremely dynamic. You know, I'm curious, Christian, especially as a player of, of the game, what was your analysis of his performance in this match? Denny is definitely a level up on, on what Raito was doing. And what I mean by that is he chooses the right moment to go in behind, to come receive the ball. I'm not going to criticize uh, Raito in terms of the defensive effort because I think this season it was more there than in seasons past, but uh, he was doing a little bit better defensively with Danny Boanga this this next or this last match in comparison to to the Houston match. Uh, there's still a little bit more that I think he can give, but he's just got here. But like there was one play that stands out in my mind where he does a, a kind of a, a cutback and then uh, you know passes it next to the player and goes around him. And he gets you know brought down, and I thought it should have been a yellow, but it wasn't. But he did that in like a split second defensively i think he was in, in our own third about to break out because there was a lot of green in front of him going on a counterattack. it's just a matter of time where he is an out and out starter in my mind and i think if opoku starts getting his minutes limited a little bit because of him and training performing i can understand it and i think opoku is going to need to take advantage of his minutes when he does come in because i think he is our future starter in the next few matches out and out not just because he just got here and he's our dp it's because he is that dynamic and that good you know it was interesting too because carlos vela was a substitute off of the bench in this match with the front three of opoku arango and denny buanga so you know i wonder if maybe it isn't necessarily a poku that takes the substitute but more maybe carlos vela and he kind of comes in as a later half sub 
uh, similar in a role as we've kind of seen recently from like Gareth Bale. Yeah, it's it's cr- kind of crazy to think about. We have Carlos and Gareth Bale coming in as our reinforcements in the last half hour when defense is worn down. I love that. I'm not going to say that should be the game plan, but I wouldn't mind having our kind of three younger dynamic. And this is before Cristanteo has even arrived, right? To even push this front six we could call now to see where he jockeys for his position. But, you know, Opoku, Denny, and Arango, I like them because all three of them were pressing the entire time, which was one of the things that I think we needed to resolve, our initial frontline pressure. So we, we were able to do that the entire game. And then once the defense is worn down, that's when Carlos Vela was doing some of his magic, was able to hold the ball, was able to look up, have passes, uh, retain the ball, pass the ball, got his assist, had opportunities where he could have shot and, and score himself. So what I will say, going back to what you said earlier about the first half, you were nervous with the 0-0. I actually wasn't much. I, there was a couple saves that Crepo had to make, but I think they were within his kind of wingspan but we were defending as a team we were compact we weren't giving a lot and I, the, the the shots that did get off it was because of our miscues defensively not because they were necessarily breaking us down and i really thought that we needed to go through something like that and then it continued in the second half despite a scoring and like right after we were able to stand that up and then after the second goal i think they kind of gave way and uh, it made it for a much more enjoyable last 15 20 minutes of the match for me We only have five more matches left. LAFC is currently sitting in first place with 60 points. And Austin is sitting in second place with 51 points. I think that it's fairly safe to say that LAFC is going to maintain the top position in the West. There is a collective, and thank you to Vince LaRosa again, and happy birthday, Vince LaRosa. Today is your birthday, and I'm stealing this stat from you. Vince did some behind-the-scenes math work. A total of seven points, whether dropped by Austin or acquired by LAFC, that will solidify LAFC as the top seed in the West. On the flip side, on the East, an accumulation of 13 points total, points lost by Philadelphia or gained by LAFC, will solidify LAFC as the Supporter Shield winners. So, Christian, we have these games left, right? We have these five games left. We're playing FC Dallas, third place right now in the West. Minnesota United, three days later. Houston, Portland, Nashville. These are some tough competitions. I mean, and when you're also looking at the fact that we've got three games in eight days and then we have and then there's a little bit of a break in between the 18th and then we have two games to finish out the season. These next three games, in my mind, are going to be the most crucial and they're going to be the defining moments because we have these three games in these eight days. You know, FC Dallas is definitely a team that's in a good run of form. Minnesota, like I said, the game that's a few days later, they are a team that's in playoff contention. They're sitting in fifth place right now on 44 points. And then Houston's at the bottom of the table. You know, looking at these three matches and how they're going to play out, I'm wondering what the strategy is going to be. Yeah, I I don't think the strategy is going to shift a lot, to be honest with you. But I do think, at least my prediction is, we'll get six points out of the next three matches, which I think puts us in good position for sure to retain first place in the West. Um, I know that 13 net points over the next five games is what we require. And I, I'm not too familiar with Philadelphia's schedule, 
So I don't know if they have any tough matches coming up or not. So Philadelphia has Orlando, Atlanta, Charlotte, and Toronto. And by and large, those teams are out. Not well. I mean, Orlando's in Orlando's in fifth, Toronto's in tenth, Charlotte's in twelfth, and Atlanta's in eleventh, right? So fifth, ten, eleven, and twelve. Those are the teams that they're currently playing. Got it. So, you know, if it's net 13 points, like I think out of the next five, we could probably get three wins and a tie, which is 10 points. So it would just be need, we would need them to lose we'll lose one, one game, game or basically. tie three of the games. Right. I think the likelihood of them losing to Orlando is possible. Probably. And I know Toronto's trying to make a push. So it depends on what how they do in the next, the next few games to see where they are at that last match. Yeah. And Toronto, same with Charlotte. I mean, I mean. Toronto, Atlanta, and even Charlotte. If Charlotte were to make a, a heavy run, because Charlotte only has 29 matches, Charlotte's sitting on 32 points. Atlanta's got 33. Toronto's got 34. And seventh place, which is New England right now, has 38. So I would think that all three of those teams are within striking distance to make it into the playoffs if yep. things fall their way. So those teams are going to have something to fight for. Yeah. Uh, well, the only thing that makes me worry, going back to your question in the next three games, what is is the midfield, right? There was forced rest for Kalen, so that's good for us. I think Seba Mendes didn't play that much last match, so I think we have another there. It's going to be managing, to me, Ilya and Sifu um, over the next three games. Um, so finding the right mix of the two other midfielders that go with one of them is good. Or if you know if he goes gun-ho and tries to get the first two games and then takes it a little bit off the breaks at home because we have the the, the home field advantage and uh, can kind of mix the midfield up a little bit that way. That that's possible too. I'm not Steve Sirianello, but those are the things, the ways I think he can approach it over the next few games. Well, it's definitely going to be interesting. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into our interview with Oliver? No, there's a, there's one thing we didn't mention. Obviously, Carlos Vela had the opportunity to put a, a spot kick away and get his ninth goal. Um, he was uh, unable to convert that. It, it wasn't the quality of penalty kick that I'm used to from him. Uh, it was just mid-height level, kind of easy for a keeper. I think he tried to give him the eyes and, and it didn't work, uh, unfortunately for us and for him. But I still do appreciate him, you know, trying to shoot in the in a conventional way versus Hapanenka. We won't talk about what that all means, but those that follow the league know that there's ways to do it and when to do it. Oh, no, um, and- there's plenty. We have people that really don't follow the league. Go look up Chicharito's Panenka that he didn't <laughs> that he didn't get in the dying minutes of their match where they were tied. Oh, my God. On frame. Yeah. It's got to be a hard and on frame in those hard situations. and on frame. And, you know, you, you're fighting to get in the playoffs. So make sure that you just put it on frame hard, uh, oh, even though you have two goals so and you're so part of the bad. reason why they're tied. You got to do the right thing, especially, you know, you're trying to go to the World Cup anyway. But I'm disappointed in Carlos Vela's effort there. Not to say that he didn't contribute to the to the game. He had the assist. He changed the game. I think he tilted the game our way, dominated offensively while RSL was tired. And it, it it was just a sight to see. And he was very disappointed himself. I, I could see that. But, uh, you know, we have his back and uh, we know that he's going to bring other elements to different games where we're going to be able to need him and use him and his qualities to to put games away when we need him. We already had two in the bag. We had, were winning by two. So no harm or foul on this one. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely, if it was a situation where we needed that goal to get three points, I think that people would be a little bit more upset. But given the circumstances that we were up, I, I think it's not as recognizable. 
if that's all we got, my man, I am ready to get into this interview with Oliver. What let's do, do it. I, I just all do right. So we will be right back after the short break with our guest, Oliver Curry, the kit man for LAFC. This is Dan Smith coming live and direct, and you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. All right, Black and Gold family. This week, we have an amazing guest from the Black and Gold staff. We have brought you Mr. Oliver Curry. He is the head kit man of your LAFC. You can follow him on social media at Oliver Curry with two Y's, O-L-I-V-E-R-C-U-R-R-Y-Y. Mr. Curry, thank you very much for making time to come out to the show today. We really appreciate it. Of course, my pleasure. I'm super happy to be on. I've listened to a couple episodes already, so I'm, I'm super stoked to, to now be uh, one of the guests. This is going to be a, a really good episode because for those of you that don't know, Oliver is an, a Los Angeles born and bred. He has roots in this community. He went to school in this area, and he's been following the black and gold since day one. So, you know, with that said, tell us a little bit about yourself, what it was like growing up in the Los Angeles, Santa Monica area, and a little bit about your background. Absolutely. So yeah, like Chris mentioned, I'm born and raised Los Angeles. My dad is black and my mom is Italian. So made for a super interesting upbringing. Basically, to put it simply, I did all of my school months, I guess, here in Los Angeles. And then I would spend the three months of summer in Italy with my mom's parents, my grandparents, just getting to experience that whole other side uh, of the world, completely different culture. Growing up in Los Angeles, it was super unique. It was super special as well from a soccer standpoint. I feel like Los Angeles has always had, and obviously to this day has an insane amount of youth football talent. And just growing up, being a part of that, going to all the different tournaments at the different youth levels was was super interesting and super fun and, and definitely interesting to see now that I'm I'm out of the game, or at least the playing side of it. But yeah, that's about it in terms of the the Los Angeles side of things. And then for the Italian side, I guess that's where my love for the game was was truly born. You know, playing in the streets with friends and in a hundred degree weather in Italian summers, watching Italy win the 2006 World Cup in a little piazza. You know, in in our super small town in Italy, are just some of the the memories that that come to mind that have made me just such a a passionate soccer fan. What where is what I guess what region of Italy what's the closest I guess big city where your grandparents are from and where you stayed over the summers yeah for sure so it's a it's a small town uh, up north right outside of Bologna so I guess that would be the one of the Serie A teams that that you can think of uh, when you first think of the city and then the other one would be Parma which is even closer super good food and super good footy as well yeah, Parma, and uh, that's where the cheese comes from, Bologna, where that's right. That, that type of meat was first kind of that's created. Right. So, yeah, of course, yeah. delicious food and obviously intense football culture everywhere Absolutely. in Italy. Did yeah, you choose exactly. one of those two clubs, being so close to either city, or did you choose one of the bigger clubs in Italy as a supporter when you were traveling? Yeah, good question. So I, I ended up choosing one of the bigger teams. I chose AC Milan, and the reason for that was. I went to like one of their little summer camps two summers in a row when I was going to Italy when I was around like 11 or 12 years old. And at the time, some of the coaches that they had on staff at these summer camps were like some ex-AC Milan players as well. And so it was kind of difficult to not become an AC Milan fan at the time. Who are the coaches? I'm interested now. To be honest with you, if I could mention them, I would, but I, I can't remember who they were ah. at, the, at the time. Yeah. After your formative years, right, you played high school here locally. You were part of uh, the club scene. You had tried, made a couple trials for a couple of academies. They just hadn't worked out. 
But after you were graduating high school, you have a very interesting story about how you went on and got accepted at George Washington and went on to go and be a walk-on at that university. But tell us a little bit about how you went and navigated the ending gears of your high school career and deciding Mm -hmm. whether or not you were going to go to George Washington or any other institution and how you actually ended up on that team. For sure. So I guess I'll start with the last couple of years of high school. I was playing club soccer for Santa Monica United, which at the time was the premier level of soccer in, in the area. And of course, there was academy. Like you mentioned, I did have a couple tryout stints for a couple different teams here, including Carson, which ended up not working out. But so yes, the highest level of club that I played was Premier Soccer. And it got to my senior year of high school. And um, let's just say that I didn't have a lot of Division One interest or any at all, really. Um, I had an offer from Occidental College to play there, uh, which was Division Three, And really, that was about it. And so I kind of shifted course a little bit and decided to look for a school that made sense for me academically first. And then obviously, I wanted to meet the criteria of it being Division One. And I guess I didn't look for like a top 25 Division One because I felt that it'd be a a little bit more difficult to walk on to a program like that. George Washington was a bit lower at the time. And so I applied early decision because it met the criteria academically and just personally for me. And then from there was kind of a race against time to get in contact with the coaching staff there to to be seen, really to to have the chance for them to to see me play. And so I attended their summer ID camp in the summer of 2014, just a few weeks before classes started. My freshman year would have started whether I was going to be a part of the program or not. And uh, the summer ID camp went really well. And Coach Jones ended up welcoming me onto the program right then and there on the spot. And then fast forward four years, and I was named captain for my senior year, which was just kind of this incredible full circle moment, dream come true type thing. And it felt like a really significant step in my kind of footballing ladder, which obviously I had hoped would culminate with a professional contract at some point, which I'm sure maybe we'll get into a little bit at some point. Absolutely. And, you know, for those of you that are listening to this, right, this is this is a a very inspiring story of someone who doesn't take what is at face value, you know, just continuing to pursue on and going out and being ambitious and and asking those questions of how to be involved. And I mean, to go from a story of being unrecognized to going and being a walk-on, you started matches as a freshman, you know, you went on to start matches again as a sophomore and a junior and to then be named captain at the culminating year of your senior year, I mean, those are the gritty stories that we love to hear. You know, those are the ones where you just look and you're in awe of the people and the effort that they put forth. I really appreciate you saying that. Seriously, that, that means a lot. And I think, uh, yeah, for for the listeners, I think it is really important to to understand that there are various different ways of approaching a goal and obtaining a goal. And I think even when we get to my story a little bit about LAFC and how I ended up in the position that I'm at now, you'll see a lot of uh, similarities, actually, in the sense that it wasn't just this straight line approach to to kit. I had to kind of navigate around uh, some different roles and, and different people. So, yeah. Well, and Another thing so, I, I don't want to, uh, I want to make sure it's not overlooked, like when you're only a couple of weeks before the first season or your freshman year, like a lot of these guys are already together for a month or so doing two a days. So sure. that speaks to your fitness level and being able to walk in a couple of weeks before and being able to make the team. Because that is not an easy feat. Even if you're the most skillful player, if you don't have the fitness level, it's going to be hard to catch up when they're, you know, at towards the tail end of that summer. For sure. And especially at Division One, And it was still a shock, no matter how prepared 
anyone goes into it. I think when you go into a division one college program anywhere around the country, it's, it's definitely going to be a bit of a, of an adjustment, but in any kind of situation like that, you just have to prepare yourself as much as you can for whatever, yeah, whatever the moment is. Thank you though. So life after though, right after your senior year, you talked about the, the ideal situation of being able to go pro. I mean, did you look domestically here in the MLS or in a lower division league here or, or did you go on and, and try to go uh, overseas and play over there? Yeah, I guess one of the major privileges of my mom being Italian was that I got dual citizenship, got the passport as well. And I think like anyone growing up, the dream is always to play in Europe. And so whether it's at the highest level, whatever level it is, you want to play in Europe, right? And so after I finished my uh, senior season, I signed with an Italian agent that tried to get me some tryouts in in Italy for the summer of 2018. And so that was my first step post-grad. I didn't have a job lined up like a lot of other people graduating that that spring did. I kind of put all my eggs in, in the soccer basket for the time being. And so I went to Italy for uh, a month to try and find at the time a Serie A D team. And the two tryouts that my agent had set up for me at the time, both fell through, unfortunately. One for, I didn't have the right medical and the other one was also a paperwork thing. So just unlucky, I guess, or ill-preparedness from my agent, but um, you know, things happen for a reason. And so after that month in Italy, I returned to the States, returned here to LA, kept training. And I played with a UPSL team at the time was called Cal FC, which was playing in the same league as Cal United, which is now um, a, is it Nisa? I believe it is. Nisa uh, team. NISA, yeah. Yeah. And so I was playing with them, looking for USL teams or a sniff at MLS if I, if I did get the chance, but I didn't. And just a funny story real quick, just to kind of wrap it all up. I had had a uh, tryout set up with the Las Vegas Lights in the spring of 2019, I believe it was. And the night before I was supposed to go to Vegas, the tryout was canceled for me because they had a game that weekend and it just didn't make sense for me to be trying out on the weekend of a game. And that was kind of the moment that I actually hung up the boots. At the time, it was going to be a temporary thing. I was just like, I think it's time to, to start working a little bit. And it ended up being permanent. Because now I'm here and I, I haven't pursued professional soccer since. But the Las Vegas Lights are now our affiliate. And uh, I work with them on a pretty pretty close basis on the day-to-day. So no hard feelings. <laughs> Very interesting. So, I mean, you grew up in LA. MLS football existed here in, in the area. Did you have an affiliation or affinity to an MLS team? Yeah. I mean, to be completely honest, growing up when bef- this was way before LAFC, I was a Galaxy fan for a little bit, for sure. I mean... When I was growing up, it was the time that David Beckham first came. And I think as Los Angelino, who's a major soccer fan, I think it was difficult to not get excited about David Beckham being being in the city playing, you know? And so that was my club, not my club, but I was a fan of, of Carson for a while growing up. And then as soon as uh, LAC started planting its roots, the the loyalties very quickly changed. So let's talk about that, right? How Tell us how you first heard about LAFC. You know, you have uh, said that you were watching that very first LAFC match in your dorm room in DC when LAFC played Seattle in Seattle and won 1-0 with the Diego Rossi goal. But how did you first hear about LAFC and what were your thoughts when you saw the club finally put boots to the pitch and, and play yeah. their first match? So I think the first time that I heard about LAFC was probably a f- few months or like maybe a half a year before the the start of the inaugural season the first game just because all of the 
content that was getting posted, all the hype that was getting built up around LAFC, even before signings were announced, coaches were announced, like it was clear that this was going to be a super big thing for the city. And I think one of the major points also was the fact that it was going to be in the heart of Los Angeles, um, which I think obviously all of us were waiting for, for the longest time. And so that already caught my eye. And then, yeah, like you said, I watched the first, uh, the first game versus Seattle in my dorm room. And I think one of the things that stood out, not only for me, but I'm, I'm sure all of us LAFC fans was the amount of LAFC fans there with the chance already with the flags, everything. Like I think now a few years later, we're seeing a lot of away fans in, in away stadiums. I think at the time that was a lot more rare to see. And so to see so many LFC fans there was, was incredible. And then to see, see us get the win in Seattle, which of course is always a powerhouse team was just incredible. And I was hooked. I was hooked from that moment on. From that moment, when you watched the first match on TV in your dorm room, at one point you actually had the opportunity to watch it in person at the bank with the 30 to 52 in the background, like walk us through that like initial moment uh, and what you felt. So I actually, I had to look through pictures and stuff to find it because I, I wasn't sure what game it was, but I found it. It was uh, June 30th of 2018. It was uh, obviously a home game versus Houston. 4-1 win. Dio had a hat trick and I sat in 134, which is you have the 32-52 to your left um, and you're on the side of the benches. And I mean, it was incredible. It was it was a day game too, because like we all know the the night games feel like a whole different atmosphere, but the day game too was incredible. I honestly don't think I went to a lot of games after that, but I watched every single game on TV after that, and it was that was the starting point of how do I find the opportunity to work for for LAFC when I'm done playing at the time. After you decided to hang up your boots and you're like, okay, I would like to get involved in sport, right? And you had mentioned this that most most athletes. Once they're done playing, if they really are passionate about the, the game that they play, they still want to be involved, whether it's coaching or front office yeah. or whatever. So when you had this vision in your head, I want to work in sports, what originally did you have as your vision of what you wanted to do in sports? Let's just say that it definitely wasn't ticket sales. When I first was like, oh, I, I absolutely want to work for LAC or any soccer team, it was, I want to be around the players. You know, like wh- what everyone wants to do, of course, is... But you don't really know how to even explain it. You just know that you want to be around the field, around the players, and and you're kind of just looking around, trying to find that perfect opportunity, which, um, Chris, as, as me and you both know, it's incredibly difficult to find. Oh, of course, of course. And so it ended up being ticket sales. I didn't envision it, but it was one of the opportunities that had popped up a few different times on Indeed and LinkedIn when I was searching. And so I applied for the the inside sales representative role and I got it. And and that was kind of, yeah, that was kind of the start to the, to the LAFC journey. Now, part of this though, right. Was you got hired and then 10 days later, shut down COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like, Hey, welcome to the club. But uh, you know, so what was that experience like working remote with COVID protocols as a sales rep, you know, and, and how did that transition lead you to where you are today? Okay, cool. So- uh, so you'd like me to transition this then into how I got into Kit? Well, yeah, I mean, just talk about okay. the overall experience working, you know, working in sales, the co- working under COVID protocols, and and right. then how it led to you finding your position that you have today. I think one of the things that I was most excited about when I got the role in ticket sales, this was before obviously COVID happened. I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity to just 
meet so many different people in the club, being at the games, being in the office every day. I just knew that it was going to be a lot of exposure to a lot of different people that I knew had roles that interested me and, and that could, you know, help me understand what I'd like to do in the future. And then, of course, COVID did happen after 10 days. I didn't get the chance to make the relationships that I wanted, make the connections that I wanted. And so at first, it was a bit of a shock. I was kind of like, well, there's definitely no tickets to sell, uh, sell right now. There's no games to go to. There's no office that we're going into to, to interact and, and you know meet different coworkers. And so I spent the time meeting all of these different people just virtually. And so I basically kind of just went on to the LAFC page of, of all of our different staff, uh, our front office staff, and I picked out some individuals that I wanted to have conversations with because obviously at the beginning of COVID, we were all at home, you know, some were busier than others, others were kind of just, you know, not doing much. And so I think a lot of people just wanted to have conversations. And so a couple of the notable individuals that I that I spoke with in those first few weeks at home were Jeff Huber, who's our team admin, and Will Koontz, who's our uh, assistant general manager. And so now two individuals that I that I interact with on a on a daily basis. But yeah, I just hopped on a Zoom call with them just to learn about their role and how they got to where they're at and and what they do for the club. And and yeah, I think it was just a super important step that I took just to make sure that I had these relationships for when eventually we did get a, get out of COVID one or two, an opportunity presented itself that I, that I could then inquire about to these people and which is exactly what happened. So fast forward a, a year, I've now that I, that I was in ticket sales, which I spent selling deposits for our wait list to season tickets for when we got out of COVID. So a lot of ifs and, you know, everybody just wondering, right? Like, uh, yeah, where's this money like, going? How's it going to be applied? And yeah, this magical wait list. Yeah, 100%. And it was kind of weird getting on the phone at the time because it, it just felt weird asking people to buy because you were like, you're not actually buying season tickets. You're buying a spot on our wait list to then hopefully get season tickets whenever we're back. But it's fine now because there are people that I sold at the time now at the bank and, and it's it's funny to see them every once in a while but yeah so after after a year of doing that um the role of assistant kit man popped up on indeed again or i mean again because that's where i've been looking for all of the lafc jobs and i asked hr directly because obviously once you're once you're in the club it's or once you're in in any organization it's easier to, to ask people about these kinds of roles and um, they put me through the interview process, which culminated with an interview with John Thornton, actually. And he was the one that officially brought me on board to the soccer operations side, which was kind of my end goal when I first started the search. And so I went on board as the assistant kit man at the beginning of the 2021. So, you know, I want to hear one of the maybe standout questions in your mind when you're having this moment out of body experience talking to John Thornton. After your inquiry, you get an actual interview with him. What what was one of the questions that, you know, was in line with what maybe your job would be, but also maybe was out of left field um, that he asked you? That's a good question. So I guess one of the ones that was out of left field was, are you ready for the time commitment that this job entails or the, that it demands? And obviously, because I was just so excited to hopefully get this position I was like yeah, yeah absolutely like I'm willing to do anything without really without not really knowing what those hours were and now that I'm in the role I, I understand them a lot better and it's absolutely not a regret 
but um, he definitely wasn't kidding that it that it's a demanding uh, environment to be in. So that was one question. And then another question was uh, something along the lines of like why I would be a good fit for the role. And the way I responded honestly was that it wasn't that I necessarily had a ton of kit experience already. It was more so the fact that I came from the background of being a soccer player and had a very good understanding of how much of a difference it makes when you feel comfortable from an equipment standpoint, having everything you need, having someone around that understands that on a very personal level um, is what I thought kind of set my talents apart, I guess. And it was a, an answer that he liked. I think it's a perfect answer. Thank you. You mentioned that the time commitment is rigorous. Do you have favorite moments in the in, as a kit manager so far? Yeah. Uh, you mean like one specific memory or just kind of um, like some of my responsibilities? What are your responsibilities and then a favorite moment? Okay, cool. So in terms of responsibilities now, in terms of favorites, my... Like what I look forward to on a, on a weekly basis now is locker room setup on match day. I think if you've watched the uh, all or nothing Manchester City, Pep Guardiola talks about how the locker room is the absolute best place for players. And so I kind of have that voice in my head anytime that I'm setting up the locker room for our guys, because whether we're here at home at the bank and it's something that they're comfortable with, used to, or we're in you know, Orlando that feels like it's a very, it's a, like a metal locker room, feels like a bit like a high school locker room sometimes. Like whatever the environment is, I want our guys to feel like they're at home and to make sure that they have all their little things that is going to make sure that they're playing their best game, whatever, you know, specific sock they have or their, you know, custom shin guards, whatever it may be. I take a lot of pride in making sure that uh, when it comes to our guys walking into the locker room, they're not asking me for anything because that means that I've done my due diligence in putting out everything that they need to, to have a solid 90 minutes. So that was that. Um, and then, sorry, what was your other question? Favorite moment so far. That's a kid, man. Favorite moment so far. I hope that I'm going to have a different answer to this in a couple months time when we, when we chat again, but currently favorite moment, I would say has to be, I, I would say probably like my first home game as had a kit man, which came only a month after I came on board because uh, at the time our head kit man was was let go. Um, and so I assumed the responsibilities of, of head kit man. And so only a few weeks into the job, I now found myself on the bench at the home opener versus Austin in the 2021 season. And uh, every player had his jersey, every player had his boots and I hadn't forgotten anything. And I was able to uh, kind of breathe for a second and, and take it all in and, and experience the bank from a from a position that, you know, a ton of people dream of. I mean, you know, speaking of that, right, you know, the being a person who had the ambitions of, of being a professional football player and now you work in a locker room and you travel with the club. I mean, this is about as close as it gets to, to having that type of life without actually being someone who plays on the pitch. I mean, you know, having a goal set to be a professional athlete is an extremely difficult one, but you've probably gotten as close as you could actually get. Like, what is that like for you to feel like that is your life? It is 1000% surreal. And to be honest, it's a feeling that never gets old. And I never take for granted, not only because of the fact that there are so many other people that that would want to experience it, but just for the fact that it's 
truly incredible. Just in, in terms of some of my favorite moments, another one that comes to mind was when we won in Orlando this season away from home. And then it was a like what a five hour flight, I think it was back home to to LA and you know, on the team plane. And I'm just had a really great conversation with Steve about the game. And then the players were up front playing, you know, chess and, and board games. And I kind of just I have these moments where I'm there and I'm like, do you understand how lucky you are to be here? And I I just really make sure to um, to embrace that and then to reverse it and put it back into my work to make sure that our our players are are feeling taken care of. And then that goes in hand with making sure that our fans get the best experience because obviously they deserve it as well. When you first started, did you like have flashcards, you know, like this player likes this this way or like how did you keep it all straight? Yeah, no, I did. I I. I made these very meticulous lists. One of the ones that stands out is uh, Jesus Murillo. He likes to wear a very specific type of compression short, sock, compression shirt, which is both long sleeve and sleeveless. So you have to make sure you have both just in case it's, you know, it can change. Like if it's 68 degrees, or you know, but it's, it's that much of a difference between him wearing a long sleeve or, or a sleeveless. So yeah, early on it was, it was a bit overwhelming. You know, I was, I didn't realize just how detailed a lot of the stuff was and even the sizing things, like making sure that every, like some players wear a small shirt, but medium shorts and all those little differences, you know, is, uh, which now of course is second nature, but at the time it was definitely, it was a lot to take in. And, and I definitely had some lists or flashcards that I, that I had to look over uh, almost every night. Who surprised you in terms of how they are? in terms of how they are on the field, their personality on the field, but as a person? I think both uh, Kellen Acosta and Carlos Vela are probably two of the guys that, that surprised me the most. Just incredible leaders, both on the field and in the locker room as well. And they're always helping to make my job easier too. Like I can always count on them to, so for example, like on the day before the game, I collect all of the players' boots, of course, and I ask them to just kind of put it in the same place so that, so that I can find them. And those are two players that will never forget and will always do it. And I can always count on them to, to kind of set that standard, which I think is really important for, for the rest of the locker room as well. But then just from a, from a person standpoint too, I have good relationships with them both and, and they're jokers at the end of the day. I mean, you know, it's obviously you see them from the outside and, and they're these, uh, incredible football players but at the end of the day they're they're everyday guys so um just super nice guys to to be around an interesting thought just came to mind you were there in 2021 and now 2022 there's two different coaching staffs so like can yeah. you is the dynamic of the locker room mirror the coaching approach right bob was a, a mm. little more rigid and like things a certain way in terms of how we coached and how the play the team played versus steve there's structure, but there's a little more freedom within it. Same with the coaching staff. Is that kind of show itself as part of the locker room culture or atmosphere for you? Yeah, I won't go into too many details about this one, but there's definitely a difference that I can feel on a day-to-day -day basis being at the training facility. And I think it's exactly like you said, I think there is a little bit more like freedom of expression, especially on the field. I think it's a little bit less rigorous this year. And I think one thing that Steve has brought this season is also the fact that, I mean, he played in the World Cup in 2010. I mean, you know, he has a lot of personal anecdotes that he brings to the locker room. And I think a lot of the guys have gotten a tremendous amount of confidence this season just from Steve alone and what he's been able to teach them and tell them and, and guide them in.
So definitely a, a difference um, in, in the two coaching staffs. Yeah, that's for sure. So now that you've had this position for two seasons, you know, I'm sure that your new goals in mind of where you potentially see your future and your career taking you are drastically different than where they were when you were selling tickets, right? Or even when you were first looking for a job. So where do you go from here, right? What would potentially be the next step or the ideal promotion? Do you ever see yourself getting into coaching or are you totally content and you're like, this is it, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think my answers evolved a little bit even in the past year or so. Last season was uh, extra tough for me just because I was on my own actually in kit. And so it was definitely a, a very demanding year and it didn't feel super sustainable. Like just the hours felt long. And so I wasn't sure how long I would want to do kit for. This season has been completely different because I have a second guy who helps me a tremendous amount. And so realistically for the time being, I'm just, I'm living in the moment because when you look at a, a football team's technical staff, you just have, you have the coaching staff, you have trainers and you have kit and there aren't that many opportunities to be at every game, home, away, on the bench, being around the players, directly contributing to it, you know, during the game. And so I'm enjoying it for the time being. I'm not sure exactly what that next step is. But one thing that is really interesting to me now is the whole player care world, which is becoming a massive thing, especially in Europe and specifically the Premier League. A fellow uh, George Washington alum actually was the head of player care at West Ham and now runs his own player care firm. And so I've just gotten the chance to speak to him a lot about, yeah, just what players need on a day-to-day basis, but now off the field and making sure that they feel taken care of, especially when players are signed and they come in and helping them with schools for kids and home, car, all that kind of thing, kinds of things. And so, you know, that's one avenue that I find really interesting. And then the other one would be a role like like Will Kuntz of an assistant general manager and, and roster building and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm not entirely sure in, in what direction it'll go, but I'm just uh, living in the moment, like I said, for now. I mean, Ted Lasso, there's a kid man that became a manager, rebel yeah. manager, but, you know, yeah, anything can no, happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have your foot in the door and it's it's about, like you said, making the relationships, finding the experiences that you think your skill set fits or that you want to build. So I think that player care, that's something I'm not too aware of. So I think I have some homework to do that. That sounds super intriguing to know more about. Yeah, totally. I think it's um it's built it's building and growing a lot, like I said, especially in Europe. And it's definitely something that's covered here now by like team admins, player relations people, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's obviously something that's super important to to make sure the players are successful. Well, you've been really generous with your time and we appreciate you coming on and giving us your insight, your journey, you know, from a young footballer with dreams, but, you know, found your own lane and, and to contributing to the game in the long term. And now you're able to be in the field and make our players feel comfortable so that they can perform. And we appreciate that for you. But we did want to ask you this last question. It's the name of the podcast. And I'm sure uh, you've you've heard uh, a lot of ways in terms of how this has been responded to. But what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Shoulder to shoulder means to me that no matter what the team is going through or the club is going through, that everyone involved with the club kind of remains as one and is still always pushing for for the one objective and not only that but i think 
uh, one of the things that sets us apart now as a club and with all eyes on us, especially, is the fact that we have some very strong core values. And I think that goes with it as well, making sure that we do not stray from those at any point in time and making sure that everyone that's on the boat is is pushing those values forward. That was great. Again, thank you very much for your time. Again, this was Oliver Curry. He is the kit man for LAFC. You can follow him again at Oliver Curry, O-L-I-V-E-R-C-U-R-R-Y-Y. And, uh, you know, if you guys ever see him on the sideline, give him a yell. You know, there's probably not too many people that are yelling the name Oliver on the sideline, man. I know. I remember I did it one match and you came over (laughs) and said, what's up? Oh, I'll hear it. So, it stands out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if uh, and if he was your ticket rep, uh, you know, now you guys have uh, an in on the sideline. Right. But uh, again, thank you very much for everything. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again, hopefully sooner rather than later. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with this week's opponent correspondent to help us preview the upcoming match uh, versus FC Dallas. Hey, this is Travis Helwig from Crooked Media, and you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this week for our opponent correspondent, we have Buzz Carrick. He is one of the co-hosts of the Third Degree podcast. You can follow them at Third Degree Net on Instagram, or you can go to their website, thirddegreenet.net. That is third with the number three R-D, D-E-G-R-E-E.net. Buzz, welcome to Shoulder to Shoulder podcast, man. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No problem, man. Uh, you know, we unfortunately we weren't able to get anyone from FC Dallas on earlier in the season. Some of these midweek matches had made it a little difficult, but we're bringing FC Dallas now. There's a lot to cover. A huge turnaround. Last year, FC Dallas ended in 11th place in the West. And I remember when we had Mr. Cook on from your co-host, he was, you know, fairly discouraged about where FC Dallas was last season. That's not to be the case this year. There has been a definite turnaround, a huge improvement. This year, you're sitting with four matches left in third place in the West on 46 points, 12 wins, 10 ties, eight losses. Recent run of form, three wins, two ties, two losses in the last seven matches with the win over Minnesota United this past weekend. Now, talk to us a little bit about just your overall feeling as a fan for FC Dallas. Well, I think most fans are going to be pretty happy with uh, the progression the team has had this season. Um, I think the turnaround is ahead of schedule. I think in a moment of honesty, if you ask the coach that they would, he and his staff would say that they're a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, last year's number one issue was the defense, which letting it let in a staggering uh, 56 goals against, I believe it was, which was near the bottom of the Western conference and was near the bottom of the all-time worst um, goals against records in club history. So with a couple of smart signings and a couple of uh, coaching strategy changes and some recovery from injury, he managed to turn the defense around really quick. The offense is a little bit better than last year, but really it's the defensive turnaround that makes this team good. Any given game, they're in the game. They rarely get blown out. Uh, That happened the other day against Nashville, but that's an, an aberration. It's the first time all year they'd had somebody score three goals on them, I believe. And um, when you have a solid defense, you're able to stay in almost any game. And now I think most fans would recognize that they lack some of the true elite firepower uh, of the teams that spend crazy amounts of money. But Jesus Ferreira, who's the first homegrown to become a DP for the club he plays for, the club that developed him, is showing all the signs of becoming a player of that stature. So it's a pretty exciting times here in Dallas. You know, you talked about some of the additions and transfers that come out. Let's highlight a few right now. Let's just talk about some of the departures. 
Obviously, I think uh, most LAFC fans are going to be familiar with the Ryan Hollingshead, Marco Farfan deal. Uh, Ryan Hollingshead playing for a, a decade or so with uh, FC Dallas, now plays for the Blue Gold. Um, so in addition to losing Ryan Hollingshead, uh, Brian Acosta, his option was declined. He now plays for Colorado. Uh, Ricardo Pepe, if you're a fan of the U.S. men's national team or uh, the Bundesliga, you might have been familiar with that. He had uh, made the move in January to go to FC Augsburg on the, in the Bundesliga. And, of course, there's Andres Ricarte, uh, who had been lost. Those had all been lost at the beginning of the season and most recently in the summer transfer window, the U22 initiative, uh, Sabak Soshun. Uh, yeah, he had Shibokshun, gone back. Yeah. Yep. He had gone back to Hungary. So you know, just some 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 key players lost. Uh, how, how overall were you feeling when you had seen some of those players that ha- that we had just mentioned being uh, transferred out before the season had started? Well, when you're going into a rebuilding phase with a new coach, you certainly can expect a large amount of tr- turnover of the roster. You know, they had some players that were getting along on the tooth and we're making relatively high amounts of money. And you have to be, if you're a team that doesn't spend, you have to be more aggressive about maintaining roster and cap equilibrium. Um, Ryan Hollingshead was a phenomenal player here for a long time, arguably the best left back in the league for four or five year run. Tremendous a player, but a tremendous attacking player. And when you had a, a defensive deficiencies, this coach uh, is a coach that does not like the flying attacking outside back. He prefers a defensive-minded outside back. So he traded Ryan to uh, LAFC. Uh, Ryan is from California. He did not request to go to California, but obviously being from California, he was open to that. And um, Marco Farfan is a defensive first outside back. More of a stay-at-home guy, more of a guy that's going to provide the connectivity to your center back and not be caught out of position, as Ryan occasionally is. Uh, And that's part of the turnaround, along with the renewed health of Matt Hedges and obviously the netminder, Martin Paz, who's playing at a level that uh, um, Jimmy Maurer did a couple of years ago, and you have to have a certain amount of stability in net. And so those two signings and a little bit of health with hedges is what solidified the defense. Um, the other losses were ones that just were not people that were performing at the value of their contracts and they are moved out. And then the, the club quite smartly waited to, for the new coach to be in place and then went after players that fit his system. There was a lot of talk in the offseason from this team and this administration about uh, the, with the phrase, it's a process. They were looking for a long-term, you know, typical three, four-year coaching cycle. And they went out and got players that fit the system more than they went out and got stars. Uh, now those players have proven to be pretty good because they do fit the system because they were guys that played for the national team uh, and knew the setup, knew the way this coach wants to play. And so they've done a nice job of puzzle piecing together good solid MLS pieces while lacking true transcendent Carlos Bella level superstars. You know, there were some players that, that did come into the, to the team that have definitely made a significant improvement. Um, you know, just to name a few of the incoming players, right. Defender Nanu is on loan from Porto U S men's national team forward. Pariola makes the move from DC United uh, midfielder, Alan Velasco from Independiente. Again, you, you touched on Marco Farfan, you know, and Martin Paz was a, a goalkeeper you guys picked up at the beginning of the season as a loan with uh, option to buy. And his option to buy was elected to be bought in this summer transfer window. And on top of that, you acquired another U S men's national team player in Sebastian and Jeff from the new England revolution. And then, and then in the draft, right in the draft, you got Siki Natsebeleg, 
in Sebeling. Yeah, Siki in Siki in Sebeling. It's a tough one, I admit. It's not easy. South African, Siki so it's a little, in Sebeling. In Sebeling, you know, so a lot, a lot of, a lot of new faces, a lot of people participating in many ways. So talk to us about some of these new transfers and how these, these, because, and I think the as an LAFC fan, you can see that having a significant amount of people coming in at one period of time, it can create a little bit of inconsistencies in the fluidity of the team, especially when you look at recent run of form with LAFC losing the three matches in a row just before. They remained a, a, a win in the in the victory column against RSL. You know, having all of these new players coming in with the loss of certain players that had been in our system for a number of years, it, it may not always work out well, but it seems to be working out well for you guys. Yeah, the entire thing is triggered by the sale of Ricardo Pepe. Um, while you, you don't hate losing a talent, the number there at 20 million-ish, whatever it ended up being, is a, a, a sea change moment for this organization. This organization, and I would say, that they won't probably triggered by the success of Austin FC. Houston Dynamo has had a similar reaction that FC Dallas has. They've altered their way of thinking and across the board of this organization. And one of those ways that's most obvious is their willingness to spend on the team. Now they're not in the territory of some of the big spenders like your Seattle's or your Toronto's or LAFC to be fair, but they had some peppy money in their pocket. And we all know that the Tam Gam stuff expires. So they spent a big chunk of it on Paul Ariola. Again, a guy who knows the Nico system, fits the Nico system, knows how to play in the Nico system, a guy that's bilingual, a good leader, a guy that helped glue the locker room together from uh, when you have lots of guys on this team that don't speak any English at all. Uh, the coach is also bilingual. That, of course, helps. Um, Alan Velasco is a spend level we've never seen here before with a price tag of roughly $9 million for a 19 year old. That's crazy new level for the hunts, but that's not prime of career player. That's money is about his potential and his future, not about what he's bringing to the table right now. Um, Paxton Pomico has returned to health, uh, seeking assembling has proven to be a real steal late in the first round, a guy that's capable of starting games. Um, you're talking about a team and Jesus Ferrer, of course, has proven to be a phenomenal, what we call a, what most people call a, um, false nine, but the coach here prefers to call a build nine because he's very active in line breaking through the midfield, but has the explosive ability to get back into the gap and, and exploit the gap along with Velasco and Ariola and players like that. So a lot of the pieces have just worked. This is a rare year where almost every move they've attempted has hit from a Dallas perspective. That doesn't happen very often. And so for all those pieces to come together and be successful early has meant that the club has progressed quicker than we thought. Now, the one area of deficiency, and we've been talking about this on third degree since Dece uh, December of last year, January of this year, was a need of a veteran eight. Paston Pomacol had no backup at all and was being forced to play heavy, heavy minutes. The other eight position in the 4-3-3 midfield was not necessarily doing uh, the yeoman's work. There's some pieces there that are interesting and have futures, but in Sebastian Legette, again, you're getting a guy in the prime of his career. He's just on the verge of 30 or just turned 30, but still in the edge of the national team on the French, the national team in MLS terms, he's a lock starter performing at a really good high level. So plugging in the guy at that midfield has made the back end of the FC Dallas season uh, even more positive than it was has, has righted whatever small summer doldrums they were going through and it's allowed them to come up to third place again and put themselves in position to get a home game, which is massively important, as you know, and then give themselves a shot to do something in the playoffs. You know, something you had mentioned about the FC Dallas and, and stepping up 
based on the clubs that are in proximity in Texas. You had spurred my memory about the Copa Tejas. And this year in the standings for Copa Tejas, uh, FC Dallas was two points shy of winning that trophy. And as a Los Angeles fan, definitely a little envious uh, of that, you know, interstate tournament. You know, what is your overall view of Copa Tejas and the competition that you now have uh, within the state of Texas between Austin, Dallas, and uh, and uh, Houston? I'm sorry. Yeah, that the Copa Tejas is a fan-driven, for the most part, thing. The team has embraced it a tiny bit. I believe FC Dallas won it last year. Um, for the FC Dallas fan and for the FC Dallas organization, obviously Houston is the rival. That's the club that there's been heated bad blood with for years and years and years. Austin, the new kid on the block, has done phenomenal things, both with their Barasha build and, more importantly, in the stands. I think they've proven to both Houston and Dallas that you can make an impact here and draw here in Texas. And I think the Hunts have realized, okay, it can be done. We need to act differently. And they are changing their ways. And you can see Houston's new owner, same thing. It's not just on the field with the coaching changes and the players. They're doing stamps in the stadium. They're really trying to have an impact in the state. Full credit to Austin FC for making that happen. Yet, on a playing perspective, they're still the new kid on the block. There's not a lot of bad feelings yet there, at least from the Dallas perspective, because Dallas has handled them for the most part uh, since they've played them. They have yet to have Austin handle them back in a significant way, like Dallas did last year when they went into their house and put in six, I think it was. So um, I think in the long run, I think that Austin will eventually become a rival equivalent to Houston just because it, that's what happens when you have a team down the road like that. They're not there yet. I don't know that the, the Copa Tejas thing is slightly confusing in the sense of there's multiple teams involved and that can sometimes make fans not quite grasp it some, as much easily as you can head to head against another organization where we flat out beat you. You know, I think you can look at the standings and recognize that Austin is really good. And if the Dallas and Austin were to run into each other in the, run into each other in the playoffs, that obviously would go a long, long way to creating a level of rivalry there that doesn't, to this point, really exist as much. It'll definitely be interesting to see, hopefully, uh, if if there is a match between FC Dallas and Austin, and it happens to be in Austin because they are higher in the standing. They yeah. happen to treat your uh, supporters a little bit better than they did the recent LAFC ones where they limited the number of seats and the fan support and active and active support with flags and drums. And, you know, that is not a common thread with the Austin community. Yeah, the, the only time I've been down there uh, was last year, and Dallas was was able to bring in the Dallas fans brought in their drums and flags and stuff. I don't sit in that section. I'm not in the involved in supporter culture at all, but um, they were able to chant and play their music and do whatever, you know, hope perhaps it's a recent development that's happening there. Perhaps they don't like when large groups come in maybe they've learned that they need to clamp that down, but I hope not. I mean, obviously a game in Austin in the playoffs, I would expect to be a, a, a big win for MLS in terms of the fandom and the interest and how, packed out that place would be and how colorful it would be uh yes if dallas dallas is more than likely not going to catch one of the, the one la or austin so you're looking at best case scenario for them getting out of the first round with your home game and then go either having to go to la or having to go to austin either one of those things is a very very difficult proposition it's why we talk about needing to build a squad that can compete at the top very very top end of the conference because having to go on the road against those top teams 
historically that was like going to Seattle, going to Portland. You're talking, you're looking at places you win one game in 20 years and that kind of thing. And, and the same as Austin and LAFC both have phenomenal home crowds. They're both very, very difficult places to go and get a result. And that's going to make it tough for Dallas, whoever they get. Obviously from the rivalry perspective, I'd prefer it to be Austin just because of the fun that that would be being right down the road, but you could not turn your nose up at the atmosphere that'll be on display. If, and when Dallas has to go to LA for a playoff game and for a or final or semi or whatever, it'll just be spectacularly good fun. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, a lot of this, this 2020 iteration of F Dallas, uh, it, it is revolving around the new coaching staff and new head coach, Nico Estevez, um, who had gotten appointed earlier this year, who is replacing Luchi Gonzalez, who had been fired this last September. So talk to us a little bit about Nico and his coaching and, and just his, his overall ability to just implement his, his, his coaching mentality on this club. Well, he's a he comes from Greg Bol- Bearhalter's U.S. Men's National Team, so he plays ninety nine percent of the time. He plays the same four three three as the U.S. Men's National Team. So, if you've watched the U.S. Men play at all, you can identify the exact same roles in the FC Dallas club and the way they play on the field that you'll see with the national team. The same players in the same positions, not the same players, excuse me, same profile players in the same positions perform the same jobs. Now, this coach here is willing to shift formations. They have three or four other formations that they can shift in and out of during the run of play. But generally speaking, and particularly on the road, they play a grind it kind of mid to low block at times, but they, when they get the ball back, they, they hit the accelerator hard. They don't counter attack. It's not over the top, but they play forward with some alacrity and try and catch you on balance, typical high level transition football. They will also try and press. From time to time, it's not constant, but they will press in moments to try and turn you over and score that way. And they also like to get fouls high up in the field and themselves a chance on set plays, whether it be um, balls in from wide to guys like Matt Hedges, who has a, who can score some goals with his head, or if it be the free kicks of Alan Velasco, who's got three or four on free kicks this year alone, which has been a while since we've had a player of that caliber here. So they got three different ways they can score on you, and they also like to clamp it down. And on the road, they will attempt to kill a good 60 minutes of the game before they try and really go for it and put themselves in a chance to steal steal points on the road. At home, they're a little more expansive, a little more willing to play all the time. Depends on the quality of the opponent. Depends on the kind of opponent. This coach is a heavy attention to detail guy. They, they tweak the system. They tweak the style. They tweak where players are on the field. Uh, they tweak the overall game tactics based on the opponent. Different kinds of opponents draw different kinds of systems and different kinds of uh, tactical setups. And it's a really advanced level of coaching that is perfect, I think, for the professional game. And so far, he's he ticked all the boxes correctly. Occasionally, there are fans that don't like some of his sub patterns, but I've never seen a coach in MLS that that's not true, that there's not some section of the fan base that doesn't like the way the guy subs. You know, most fans always want to go for it, and the coach sometimes will not be going for it, if you know what I mean. So uh, I don't put too much stock into that. There are moments where I'd like to see a little bit of quicker reaction, but that's a minor nitpick compared to the overall success that they've had with this new guy who's been a perfect fit here for Dallas. And I can tell you the, the number one indicator that he has the things going correctly in terms of man management, you know how hot it is here. And the, the workload that this he runs a shorter bench than any coach I've ever seen. And yet 
Dallas, knock on wood, is completely injury free and has not had a major injury all season. So that's a real sign to me that he's managing the roster and managing the workload in a positive way to give this club a good chance at the end of the season. Yeah, I think that it's definitely going to be an interesting match this upcoming weekend. A nice uh, potential postseason preview, as it were, especially with, I think, LAFC wanting to make sure that they finish out the season on the right foot, giving confidence to the players and the fan base. Uh, you know, the way in which they lost to Austin FC recently, uh, if you were to lose in a similar fashion to the third place team in the West, I'm not necessarily sure how that would be set, how that would be felt in in and out of the locker room. How are you feeling over the last four remaining matches for FC Dallas? Obviously, this upcoming weekend versus LAFC, following that as a match versus San Jose, then Colorado, and finishing out the season against Sporting Kansas City. Well, I think the recent LAFC's loss to Austin, and even more so to Houston, uh, and the way Houston exposed them a couple of ways that are interesting. I think there's some chances that, uh, particularly since the game is here, obviously, if I'm going to play LAFC, I'd much rather have it be here than in LA. Um, That gives you a much better opportunity. Yet LAFC is still a team that can score from anywhere at any time, super dangerous. So it's going to be a tactical chess match kind of game. I'm really, really looking forward to that one, actually, as two teams at the top of the Western Conference. In a way, it's a – I think it'll be a way for Dallas to sort of give themselves a late season health check. How good are we really? Can we handle LAFC at home? And then after that, you honestly, uh, as MLS schedules go, Dallas has had a really tough schedule. I mean, all schedules in the Western Conference are tough because the Western Conference is good. But they've had a really tough schedule, lots of heavy hitters in the mid to early part of the season. And they, you know, in standings terms, they're catching, you know, bottom of the West San Jose, near bottom of the West Colorado and bottom of the West Kansas City as their final three games. And in the international break, they scheduled themselves a friendly against Tigris to give themselves a little bit of a consistency of having some kind of run out every week. So those those final three league games and the one non-conference game after LAFC give you, in terms of a setup for your postseason, they give you a three-game chance to feel good about yourself. Now, you can't lift off. You can't coast. You have to perform but those are three winnable games. And if you can go into, regardless of what happens against LAFC, if you can go into the playoffs with three wins or, or three games, at least without a loss, any losses in there, you have to be really, really good about your chances in the postseason. So you could not ask for a better schedule. Now it's down to your team to actually do what's asked of them and perform. Absolutely. Finishing out the season on the right foot is always most important. They always talk about trending upwards and finishing the season. Uh, so that the momentum carries on to the postseason. Um, but you got to get through LAFC first. So Absolutely. in doing so, what are your expectations for this upcoming weekend's match uh, versus LAFC? Are you expecting FC Dallas to come out in full force or potentially, you know, look for a substitution opportunities or plus, you know, the weather, you know, the home field in Dallas. I mean, we are in a bit of a heat wave here in Los Angeles, but, you know, it is it is a different atmosphere, like you talked about in Dallas. And I do think that the weather plays in your favor. Yeah, I believe it's the temperatures are expected to still be in the mid to upper 90s, which is pretty hot, of course. It's not as hot as it is in the summer around here, but it's still pretty hot. Um, I think for the most part, Dallas will play their game. Yes, you will 100% see the best starting 11 that they have. This coach is the most locked in on a starting 11 that I've ever seen. He rarely ever rotates. What he does is he uses the new five sub rule to manage minutes on guys that you might typically rotate. So if things are going well, 
your main sort of players all start coming out 50, 60, 70 minutes, game after game after game, if they're if things are going the way they want to go them to go. If things are bad, then that obviously doesn't happen as they're trying to chase the game, perhaps. So I would expect the full boat 11, and I would expect the Dallas thinks they're going to try and win this game. Um, you know, they 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 have a tendency to play this mid to low block. That's a that's a LAFC is not a team that that plays like an over-the-top counterattack style like a Minnesota does or like a Nashville does. LAFC wants to play. Dallas wants to play. These are two teams that want to uh, – Dallas just doesn't want to necessarily possess the ball, but when they get the ball, they want to play nice soccer. They want to play good attacking soccer, come at you on the ground. They're not hoofing it and chasing it. Um, and I think LAFC is the same. Uh, both teams defend in kind of similar ways. Um, they both shift their tactics as they – tactics are fluid. They shift the shape as they come from the back to the front. Uh, and it's going to be a, a chess match between two pretty good coaches uh, in this league. Well, Buzz, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you helping us preview the upcoming match this weekend. Again, this has been Buzz Carrick from the thirddegree.net. Uh, you can follow them at thirddegree.net, which is the number three R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E.net uh, or thirddegree.net on social media. Um Again, we look forward to it. And uh, if, if you do ever, if the postseason falls to where FC Dallas comes to Los Angeles, we would uh, let us know, man. If you end up making the trip, we'd love to host you. Uh, thanks. I appreciate the offer. No problem. And we'll be right back with our last segment for this week's episode. This is Nick Cajola, starting trumpet player for LAFC. And you are listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. Do it for LA. All right, Christian. We have just heard from our friends over at Third Degree Podcast who have helped preview this match coming up against FC Dallas. What are you thinking, my man? We just talked about how FC Dallas is sitting in third place right now. You know, and they're on a they're not on a terrible run right now. It, it's definitely great from where FC Dallas had been in previous seasons. Uh, I think that they are not necessarily used to being this high on the table come the last final five matches of the season. But what are you thinking? You know, it, when you look back at their their August, which was they had six matches, you know, two wins, two draws, two losses, a little bit of everything. You know, what what's your overall assessment of this upcoming match against FC Dallas? Yeah, I think I think, you know, they're, they're going to try to hold it out at home. They're going to do well. But I, I think their bench is limited so i don't know if they're going to be able to kind of hold us off in the second half and i think that's the story of the team and we have a deep bench and we're able to to kind of put in a shift uh and then bring reinforcement so i think if we have an approach similar to what we did with rsl where we have a good defensive effort the first 30 40 minutes and we're away we can definitely come out with points and i think we can get a win uh we just got to make sure we track uh jesus ferreira uh, make sure that he is uh, not the fulcrum or the reference point that he can be uh, or getting in behind. I think he he's he's the majority of what makes them tick offensively. And um, if we can kind of wrangle him up, uh, I think that um, their weapons are limited without him being a factor. Yeah, it's uh, definitely going to be a turning point match. I think that LAFC is going to come out and they're going to play to the best of their ability. And we're going to see the best starting 11 with LAFC. I think that there might be a little bit of that rotation 
uh, of players in the Minnesota match, but I think that Steve Terundolo understands that, you know, if you lose to the second place team in the West and then you lose to the third place team in the West, like that may not give the the players a vote of confidence leading into the playoffs about the, the two teams that are immediately below you in the table. So I think that this is definitely a, a, a an all out, you know, hey, we're going to come at this club full force to show that that we deserve to be in first place. I'm confident that the match against FC Dallas is going to be a good one, and it's definitely going to be in favor of LAFC. I think it's going to be a tough one. The prediction I'm giving is going to be a 2-1 hard-fought game, one with some moments at the end where you're kind of asking for the whistle to be blown, so that's not a draw. But I think we pull out the win. Just looking right here, uh, weather expectations in Dallas this upcoming weekend are going to be in the low 90s, which I think will be a little bit of a nice change given the heat wave that we've had here in Los Angeles, but still hot. You know, it it will still be a hot match. So, yeah, I'm excited to see it, and uh, I'm, I'm really hopeful about the overall outcome. I expect 2-1 victory, LAFC. So, well, my friend, with that, that just wraps up another episode of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. Uh, again, thank you very much to Oliver and our friends over at third degree for giving us the preview of the FC Dallas match. Again, if anybody is out there listening, and would love to be a guest on our show. Please reach out to us at our social media handle at LAFC S2S. And, uh, or if you know somebody that wants to, that has a great story that you would like to have them tell, you know, let us know and we'll reach out to them and we'll chase them down and try and get them onto the show. And it'll be a lot of fun. For those of you traveling to Dallas, be safe. For those of you going to Minnesota, be safe. We more than likely will not have an episode covering the Minnesota United match as a preview, but we will have it as a recap after we talk about the FC Dallas and Minnesota match and have our episode out in time for Houston. Uh, so for on behalf of myself, Jonathan, Christian, sound engineer, Wilton, Thank you very much for listening and uh, take us home, Sticks. Up to up. Together, this our culture. The force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC door song. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They want me to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.